1: Good evening, everyone. And thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Vance Crow. Vance is the CEO of Articulate Ventures, a strategic communications company in St. Louis, Missouri, and is a non-resident fellow at the Center for Conflict and Peace Studies at the Seton Hall School of Diplomacy. If you enjoyed this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Vance, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're working on today.
2: Well, I grew up as uh, a middle child of seven in central Illinois. And all I wanted to do in the world was to leave my small town. <laughs> and so I uh, I went to uh, college and studied communications. I had no idea what I would do with that. But when I got all the way through at the end of school, I, um, I took an internship with a PR firm. And uh, it only took me a couple of weeks in that internship to realize I'd made a horrible mistake (laughs) with my education and I needed to leave it all. And so I did uh, what any um, young kid that's like disillusioned with the world, I became a deckhand and uh, traveled around the Western hemisphere on a ship, just uh, paying my way by being a deckhand. Mm And then um, after that, I I went on a series of adventures. I became kind of an anywhere person that just wanted to see the world. And so that took me to um, uh, the northern coast of California in Mendocino, where I was in community public radio. I lived in Africa with the US Peace Corps. I ended up getting a graduate degree in diplomacy and then uh, went to work at the World Bank. Ultimately left that, uh, moved to St. Louis, and uh, took a job with Monsanto, um, which right now is in people's memories. But a few years from now, people won't even remember what that was. But at the time, it was probably one of the most hated companies in the whole world. And my job was to go out and speak to millennials about what their um, concerns were about GMOs and pesticides. And then um, after Bayer uh, bought Monsanto, I was kind of no longer interested in that work, so I left and uh, started up my own communications firm, which uh, which I'm doing now.
0: Yeah, so I grew up on a farm in South Dakota. And uh, as my brother reminded me um, a while back, he says that being a farmer, you pretty much couldn't do farming without Monsanto, because they make such a wide range of products. And um, the, the news just focused on a couple specific products that they made, but uh, they were um, pretty, pretty pervasive in the agriculture world.
2: Yeah. and, And really from the farmer's perspective, I've met tens of thousands of farmers. You occasionally find people that had a bad run in with Monsanto, or they do an entirely different cropping system. So they're not really into the conventional system. But for the most part, anywhere where I was talking with farmers, I was just a part of the crew. I was just a part of the regular people that are that are in the mixture of farmers. And I think the general public doesn't have that sense. They think farmers are on one side of the fence and Monsanto was on the other. But the not really the way it works on the inside.
0: Yeah, as as a speaker, I give quite a few talks every year on the future of agriculture, and many of the talks, um, many of the events were sponsored by Monsanto. So that was that was part of the whole culture. So, um, with what was the kind of the the toughest things that you ran into by being the Monsanto guy?
2: Well, the first thing was that when I came to Monsanto, all those places I'd been US Peace Corps, the World Bank, public radio, right? Like these were all the tribes of people that vehemently hate Monsanto. So when I was doing the interview, I really only did it because I thought I'd get a great blog post out of it. I thought (laughs) like, well, who doesn't want to see inside of North Korea? And then when I got in there and I realized like the way they were going to do this job, the way they were going to train me was that they were going to let me go talk to anyone about anything that I wanted. I would get a list of 50 people from throughout the company, chemists, breeders, geneticists, farmers, attorneys, communications people. And then when I got done with that list of 50 people, I would go back to my boss and we'd figure out what I did and didn't know. And I'd go to another list of 50 people. And when I realized this was going to be the training program, it dawned on me, they're going to let me run around this company. And if I discover that that they're as evil as everybody thinks that they are, well then I'll go write the greatest tell-all book of all time. Right. And if they're not, then you've just discovered you know, maybe one of the most important communications problems in the history of the modern world, which is we're growing food more bountifully than we ever have before in the history of time, and yet people are afraid and angry about how their food is grown. So once I decided to do that, and I decided to take that job, instantly people that I had been friends with for 10, 20 mm-hmm. years, Thought that I was a Judas, you know, that thought that I was a traitor, and uh, that was a very difficult thing to get past. When you have, whether it's family members or people that you've eaten dinner with or they've stayed in your home, that now like are are openly willing to say, "I think that you're evil or you're just in it for the money." That was a very very difficult thing to get past.
1: That's remarkable. I I feel like you are uniquely positioned to comment on the way narratives seem to be evolving in the modern world and how you find these different tribes of people which can look at the same set of facts and come to such radically different conclusions that if you're not in any of those tribes, it just boggles the mind. Like You would think that there's just... There's basic facts that everybody can agree on, and yet no one seems to. And since you have had a hand in shaping narratives, in restructuring narratives, I wonder if you can just comment on that process. Do you think it's getting worse over time? What's the engine driving it? Just feel free to riff on that a little bit.
2: So I used to think that the way we arrive at conclusions is we go out and look at the world and we say, oh, that's a problem or that's a thing out there. And let me go find out what the right answer is. And then I'm going to just know the answer and I'll be a part of the melu. But over time, when you start to understand why is it that people think what they think, right? Why are there people out there that would literally end a 20 year friendship over somebody going to work at a company, then you have to take a deeper look at it. And I started to realize that Most of what we know is actually what the group thinks. And there's some really powerful reasons why we would, why our brains would work this way. We we want to think that we're rational and that we're coming up with all of the decisions um, on our own. But in fact, our there's so much information out there. There's so many things to know about. In particular, in this digital age, where you're, um, you know, wondering what's going on in Kyrgyzstan and what's going on in China and the U.S. and different parts of the your city. So there's so much going on that you can't possibly do at all. And so what our brain does is it says, I'm, I'm not necessarily looking for the right answer. I'm looking for the normative answer. What answer will allow me to get along with the people that I want to get along with? And if you think about kind of way back when we were living more as um, really, you know, tribal people, people that had to spend their days and depend day in and day out on, on having other people share food with you, you come to the realization, getting along with the group is actually oftentimes way more valuable than getting the right answer. There's very few people, engineers, scientists that are on the edge trying to discover something new that need the right answer. Most of the time, it is way more beneficial for you to have an answer that other people agree with. And so now in the digital age, we see this hugely amplified because now people can have an expectation that you don't just hold some beliefs or you don't stand up uh, for certain beliefs, but now you have to actually overtly say, you know, people putting up um, on Instagram, whether it's in their bio, certain little code words that say, hey, I'm a part of this tribe, which means I'm by default, not a part of that tribe or right. th- these uh, signals around it. These are all things that are somewhat of a requirement because it, it's been so amped up over social media that um, we've gone beyond just, uh, hey, I have opinions about the things I talk about too. I have to have opinions on everything.
0: Yeah, I've been describing myself as I I subscribe to several competing echo chambers and, uh, is, which is code words for I'm trying to stay balanced. So,
2: <laughs> Well, I remember when it used to be that uh, you were considered balanced if you listened to NPR and you read the New York Times and you watched Fox News, right? That was supposed to be like a well-balanced <laughs> news diet. And I don't think anybody would think that even came close to covering the whole panoply of different ways of, of viewing the world at this point. You, you, you would be seen as um, somewhat old-fashioned if that's what you thought was a, a well-balanced media diet now. So
1: what do you think is required to break out of that? Like, How much hope do you have that individual people or just society at large will be able to take a more reality first, proactive approach to thinking through issues?
2: You know, I, I this is where I oscillate between being really positive about the future and and really wondering what's going to happen. Um, because the optimist in me says, "Hey, if we can get ourselves into a mess like this, certainly we can get ourselves out." And it doesn't appear to me that people would actively choose to be in chaos, to be in this kind of unknown territory where you know we don't really know what's going to happen. And yet, I, I think that there have been some major societal changes, not least of which COVID has a really big impact on it. You know, for the last 80 years, from about 1920 all the way up to 2000, if you went and asked people, Are you a member of a church? about 70% of people would say, Yes, I regularly attend some kind of church group in the year 2000, that went from 70% over the next 15 years down to below 50%. And I'm sure now after COVID, that number is is even lower. And you think about the value of church. You, you could say, wow, people need to get their morality or their, you know their their minister tells them what to think. But I think one of the biggest impacts of church is You show up and you don't choose the other people that you're surrounded with, the other people that your children wave to as they're running up and down the pew, the other people that you see as you're walking in and out. And suddenly you have to have civil conversations with people because on social media where you can go and just try and obliterate their argument, you can go fight with them to the (laughs) death on things. You can't do that in, in at church, or you can't do that at the Rotary Club or your bowling league, because if you do, you're the one that's going to be ostracized, not that person. And, and you don't have the ability to push people out. And I think it's that soft space where people actually get together, they see one another, they're pushed to talk with people that have different views than them, that opens you up to say, oh, wait, my bubble narrative, like we were talking about before, maybe could have some more nuance there. So until people start meeting in physical space again, and and really in mass, probably far larger than what we were doing before COVID, I, d- I don't know that this problem will be resolved. So this, this
1: sounds like the bowling alone thesis, right? That over time, the, the fabric of civil society has as worn thin and now there's much less uniting us than was once the case. And it sounds like church in this context functions as a, as, as a way of bringing different bubbles together such that it's impossible to maintain the illusion that this is the only way of interacting with the world you, you you are forced to interact with these people to interface with people who believe radically different things who are maybe just thoroughly unpleasant you know who just don't bathe as often as they should or, or something like that and you just have to be kind of polite so it has this sort of civilizing influence completely apart from the actual moral content of what you get from the sermons is that about right
2: yeah, exactly. You know, and um, I'm trying to think who wrote Bowling Alone, uh, Pu- Robert Putnam, Putnam, right? Putnam, yeah. So in, in that same vein, he and Charles Murray, right, another social scientist came up with these ideas of as you start separating society out, as it starts fractionating, then you really have people, you really start echo chambers. So there is a church just down the hill from where I live that is right on the edge between a super zip. So one of the highest value um, zip codes in the entire country, it's up there with, you know, Orange County or something like that. Um, It collides right next to probably not a low income neighborhood, but one that's probably just above the median income, right? So those two neighborhoods all come together for church. Well, if you don't have that situation, then the people in the super zip are going to go spend time in their restaurants, in their country clubs, going to their private school events. And the people that are living in the lower um, class uh, neighborhood are going to be going to their own groups. But because of this church, you would push people together that were different socioeconomic statuses. you, you And that there in and it of itself is going to create some sort of churn that makes you view things in a very different way than if you're only in your own, little echo chamber.
1: What are there other institutions besides church that you think can fulfill that function?
2: Yeah, I think church was a big one um, for, for a long time. I think that uh, many of the other clubs that we have, you know that there's a reason why rotary clubs were so popular. I think when um, people came back from the various wars and you had these um, veterans groups that would get together, I think sports in a lot of ways yeah. plays this function um, the arts does, right. It's anywhere where people can be attracted to something, but their, their, uh, income status doesn't necessarily limit them or, or, um, you know, their IQ doesn't necessarily limit them. So you get into some kind of arts and you say, well, you know, that's really only, those are high class arts or those are luxury arts. Um, so it starts to bifurcate there, but I think in some ways, depending on which one you're talking about, it, it can mix people together in the same way that church does.
1: It sounds like it's just a, a mechanism for preventing a certain kind of stratification. And, and as you were talking about people congregating in churches, I was thinking, well, a church can be a bubble, too. You get these internecine conflicts between different religious denominations that to an outsider, th- the, the theological splits just look like they could not be more trivial. But as long as you have other dimensions where people are meshing. Uh, like along political dimensions, socioeconomic dimensions, or just raw intelligence, what have you, then you still get this churn that's very productive. You get people learning how to work together in groups with people they may not agree with. You get people who just learn basic social skills, that sort of thing. Um, So I think that's a really, that's sort of an interesting idea that I've never really considered before, the the way that you can force interactions along a different axis that otherwise people will preferentially stratify along, like socioeconomic status
0: or um, uh, taste in music or, or whatever it is. So, is there any hope for the metaverse providing some of those um, um, kind of meeting places? That um, so, I, I I like to think of this as random uh, random collisions. Uh, random positive collisions that happen where you meet people you would otherwise not come into contact with so the uh, the metaverse is still poorly defined at this point but <laughs> maybe there's a possibility that that could happen in 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 the online world do you think that that's possible or are they going to be be so mm, so seeking the advertising dollars that they want to Uh, define themselves as one side of an issue or the other.
2: Um, I think there's a lot of potential in VR and in fact, right when COVID happened, I took my interest in VR from kind of being a passing thing to really spending a lot of time there. I created, um, a bar, a network that I run, um, ended up running our monthly book club inside of there. And you've had a guest on that really talked about, um, uh, different ways that people connect and, and when you're trying to use avatars, there's something that just doesn't feel right about, you know, seeing a face that doesn't react, but he did talk about sound right and he said this is a really important thing well what i discovered is if you use a platform like um mozilla hubs or somebody designs a platform they have this um uh factor in it where as you walk further away from somebody the sound gets lower and lower and you wouldn't think if you've never used vr that this is a very big deal but this really sound is what gives you the sense of proprioception where do i fit in this space and when you get a group of people together, and the people that are talking closest together can hear each other very clearly, and then just like in a bar, if you have a cluster of people maybe a few feet away, you can hear the mumbling of that group, but you, can, you, you know that you're in a different group. This sensation is very powerful. And I believe that when we really start to hone down on sound, when people get better and better at creating that. Then your mind will uh, relax when you're in these spaces, and I think you will have probably, you know, if we think about, um, you know, hard space being the, the being actually in a physical connection, and soft space being just over email or digital connection. There's probably some middle ground in between there that's not as good as being in person, but if it increases the frequency with which people meet each other in the um, in the world, I think the metaverse has a real potential to do that mixing. Then the question becomes, how do people find each other in this area? And that that would still be a question of how do you get them to mix together if they're from different strata, whether it's politically or IQ or orientations about other things. It's like a
1: firm space, right? Like between the hard space and the soft space. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Well, so I I think just as a, a first pass at answering that question, it would need to be the same kind of phenomena that served that function in cultures previously. So sports would be a good one. Concerts would be a good one. I like the idea of book clubs, although that's probably sm- small enough and intimate enough that it wouldn't quite cut across the different strata in society as much as something like um, like Churchwood. But if you can port those over cleanly, then I think you have a real potential for fulfilling some of the same roles that Bygone institutions did. And I think it's interesting also that sound has played such a huge role in VR becoming more um, usable and more palatable. It, it just turns out that the human experience is much richer than people appreciate. And if you leave any little detail out, even if a person can't articulate what's wrong, they know that something is. There's just something that there's like an unc- uncanny valley effect, but it's an uncanny valley everywhere you look. You're just in the uncanny valley because the sound isn't quite right. The faces don't respond. It's, you don't smell anything. It's just you, your brain rebels against that. I think that's an interesting observation. And I'm, I'm given to understand, although I'm not an expert in the space that we've progressed by leaps and bounds in solving many of those problems. We've, uh, we spoke with, who was it? Um, Brian Baker on episode three, Thomas. Is, is that who I'm thinking yeah, of? Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and he, he always talks about mm-hmm. what's he called the barf factor, the the barf. Th- there's some word for it, right? So if like the lag is too many milliseconds, uh, th- then your brain will just, it will just eject, right? You will just reject the whole scene and it will simply not work. But, uh, he's, he's told us that a lot of that latency has been whittled down and it's actually pretty good now. And so I I hold out hope that possibly the metaverse could be a place where people could congregate in ways that they used to, and that we can ideally repair some of that social fabric. Although that's an awfully large burden to place on Facebook and they don't have, they don't have a long history of of getting that right.
2: (laughs) I think the biggest challenge is that, uh, there's not going to be some large scale fix. So, you know, if you read about Robin Dunbar's work on, on how many people can be in a community, right? A church congregation has about 130 families in it, right? There's all, if you go look around at most of the institutions, about 130, maybe 150. Once you get above that number, the community breaks down because people don't know each other. And therein lies the big challenge. the, The way that we will get back to probably more um, Warm discourse, right where where people aren't attacking one another, you know, to the blood feud death, is if you're in communities of 130 people where you there's no one that's anonymous that people feel cared for, that people um, feel like uh, people look in on them even when there's not benefit, social benefit to to them being looked after, and so there's these factors that come, and it's like uh, they're limiting principles, which is why you don't want to go to the chaos because once you've broken up all these communities to build them back takes generations. It's not something that can easily be done and probably can't be done without hitting that uncanny valley. Um, in, in, if they're not done naturally, right. If it doesn't occur kind of on its own, it needs to grow
1: organically. And so the problem really is furnishing a platform for people to do that themselves. There's, I don't know that there is any good way to engineer, those, those kinds of communities. To the best of my knowledge, no attempt to do so has ever succeeded. They, they have to occur spontaneously. They kind of build up over time. The connections are ones that are fostered when people are children and they grow older and they kind of know each other. And, and there's just these ties that go back a long time and can't really be replaced and once sundered are not easy to repair. And so it's mostly about giving people a place to do that. What do you think will be the future of social media? Given that you have a background in communications, you've worked in, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say PR exactly. I don't know if that's how you would describe it, but, uh, narrative engineering. How about that? Um, (laughs) I'm not sure that's much better. Yeah. Right. It's (laughs) it's a nice $10 word for it. Um, put that on your business cards, but uh, given that you've done all those things, just what's your prognostication for the future of social media?
2: So I think we're seeing it happen already. Uh, I believe there's going to be a huge proliferation of private networks where people say, hey, the arrangement I made when I first got into social media where um, I use this awesome platform with all these features for free, um, I now realize that this puts me in a community of people I don't really care about that that don't check in on me. The numbers are way too big. They go beyond my Dunbar number. And so I want something else. And so I think people will use different networks. Now, the first ones that spring to mind are people saying, oh, I'm going to jump off of Twitter and I'm going to go towards Gitter or Parler. Right? But right, I'm God. actually talking about something maybe a little bit more um, uh, small scale. So um, Andreessen Horowitz uh, funded a company called Mighty Networks. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with this, no. but I would make the, I would make the comparison that it's like a white label Facebook where um, you have a few moderators, they can choose to set up um, you know one big group, they can have classes, they can have um, and so I've actually set up several of these networks. And what you see is by cont- by controlling who gets in, Um, People paying to be there, so they're in some sort of a membership, Um, and then the fact that they know the other people that are there, um, it ends up having much more robust conversations. So, one of the networks I run is called the Articulate Ventures Network, and you see people being able to have political discussions. You know, the one that was talking about today, you know, what are your thoughts on vaccines and how do you feel about them for children? It was a really robust conversation with people having diametrically opposed viewpoints, but no one fighting with one another. In fact, asking a lot of clarifying questions, a lot of like, hey, I didn't realize you thought that. Tell me more about this. And so I think that when you create these, I, I think the future will be people paying to be a part of private networks where they end up getting into groups that either are um, think one way, right? So they're on the right or the left or the up or the down political spectrum, or... They choose to be in groups where there's some sort of uh, diversity of thought, but that um, other mechanisms keep people from fighting to the death. And so I think that that will grow over time.
1: Have you? Uh, so I assume that you listen to every one of our episodes in the back catalog in preparation for this interview. But just in case, did you happen to, mm-hmm. to catch episode nine with uh, Galen wolfpoly
2: No, I was listening to, like, how do you stop asteroids from hitting the Earth and (laughs) all this stuff. (laughs) Also
1: important stuff. Uh, But he is the CEO of Tlon. And Tlon, uh, which is delightfully easy to say, is the parent company for Urbit, And they are trying to build – well (laughs) – there, there's some disagreement as, as to exactly what it is they're trying to build. No one is really clear about it, but they are trying to set up a, uh, a set of, of networks exactly like that. So you could set up your own server, you can kind of run a lot of your own services, and it's much easier to do and allows you to kind of curate your own community of people. So like your gaming group, your book club, what have you, there's a really easy way for you to kind of set all that up and just to establish a private network and let it grow organically. I think they're trying to solve the problem that I alluded to earlier, where it's not so much that you are planting the seeds, but you're tilling the soil, I guess. Uh, if we want to use a farming metaphor, since we're all from farming regions, um, you're, you're just establishing a place for people to get together and and build their own fences and curate their own communities within. So if, if you're interested in that, you ought to check that out. I think it's a, Episode nine. I well, could be wrong. About so
2: that. yeah, we're on we're on the Futurati podcast. So normally I have to like keep my predictions uh, relatively sane. But I <laughs> so if you really want to know my my uh, my thoughts on the future of social, it, I believe that people owning their own so, uh, servers. And the concept of digital sovereignty will become of paramount importance. There will be almost nothing more important than that. And people will, I believe, someday hold their own servers in their house the same way that you have an air conditioner in your house or some other large scale uh, appliance. And, um, and, And the idea of... Connecting, Erbit being a perfect example, having different networks that you're already with, people saying we treat data in this way, we treat your information in this way, we connect you with other people that are like you, I think is is almost uh, a certainty, and I I believe that some form of cryptocurrency will will be around to have people pay the fees that say, hey, we're willing to be a part of this group, so we're willing to pay into it in a way that's a little bit more difficult with things like credit cards right now.
1: You might be interested also in episode 59. We uh, we interviewed Irene Ng, who is the CEO of DataSwift, and they are doing that exact thing. So DataSwift is setting up personal servers and trying to solve the problem of collating all your identifying information and giving you an easy way of choosing when and how to expose that information. So instead of it just being out there for anybody who wants to Google it, like your doctor can look at certain things, your uh, like the, whoever runs the HOA can look at other things. If they're running a credit check on you, they can look at things and otherwise they can't. And so she's trying to put rails under the concept of digital sovereignty.
0: And so I think you might also be interested in that episode as well. Yeah. One, one thing I've found is that when you talk about, uh, future technology, 20 years in the future, that there are no, there, there's no sides drawn yet. Um, and so people can have um, decent conversations about some technology that might be coming without already having formed an opinion. And so pushing things 20 years into the future, um, it's, it it creates a whole different battleground, so to speak, um, unless there's some underlying thing that's leading from today to that, that point. Uh, but in general, we get some really good discussions and and since the future hasn't formed yet, then we have uh, a good uh, a good discussion about those topics. Um, is, is does that seem like a
2: good place to start? You mean like uh, pushing out into the future and to in, I mean like I think anytime you ask people to imagine together, and, and you're saying, hey, your vision doesn't have to be constrained by what we already know. That's play, right? That And play yeah. is something that, just like he, uh, Thomas had alluded to, the, the play among children bonds them together. Well, right. play among adults does the same thing. So I think exactly what you're describing, trying to get people to envision a world that's different. And that really was a lot of my work, was saying, let's imagine a world that's different than what it is. What would that look like? How would we get there? What would, what would we be responsible for once we got there and people can find agreement there. And exactly. Cause there are no tribal affiliations. I think you're, you're dead on.
1: Uh, I, th- I think it's when the idea is kind of abstract it's for it's further away. And since there are no clear battle lines drawn, people are sort of freer to let their imaginations roam. And there's a lot less tendency to kind of anchor to a particular idea. I'm, a, I'm curious as to what the process of rehabilitating the image of Monsanto was like. So I, I know that you've done some work on how ideas spread. You've got the well actually graph. This is probably a good place to, to get into that. So g- given that you were uh, a narrative engineer once upon a time, wh- what was the process of like the tune ups that you were trying to perform? What, what did that look like?
2: So when I first got to Monsanto, you know, you ask yourself how in the world did a group of people get themselves into such a horrible public relations nightmare, right? Like this, this is, it's so bad as to be like, only fools could be here doing this. And what you come to realize is if you go back and look at how, how did they get themselves into this mess? I think there was quite a bit of arrogance, right? We're doing the best technology farmers like this. Our customers are paying us for it. So what do we care about the public? We're not selling anything to the public. Why would we worry about the image? And they never imagined that 10, 20 years down the road, not talking about it, not explaining to the public what you were doing would really come back to bite you. And one of the things that had happened was when they first started to say like, oh, maybe we should send some scientists out there to talk. You sent people out there, and, and we've seen it during COVID, where they're talking in scientifically, technically precise language. So they'll never say, always or never right so if somebody says do you think these GMOs um, you know c- c- could cause cancer they'd be like well it's very unlikely you know or is it the statistical probability but they would never say never in the same way that a communications person who's much more willing to be hyperbolic or be you know over generalizations and so what ends up happening is you're sending out these scientists that end up getting into these conversations where the public is speaking one language and they're speaking another and they went horrible and you would hear these stories of scientists being like I, I got mobbed by 200 people that were so irate with me I'm never going out to do it again and so then the company started saying like we're not going to send anybody out there <laughs> and so when I got there the question became well how do you start a conversation with a group of people or or the mass the the, the masses in general you know I my actual job title was, director of millennial engagement. And they would say, well, we want you just to go out and talk to millennials because the problem was so bad that that was as detailed as they could get. And so my first um, concept was just to say, who does it matter if we talk to? Where are there people that if we show up and we um, answer the questions that they have, that they would one, be willing to change their opinion, two um have a reason to care about this right to to uh, to understand our perspective or how maybe the narrative that we were putting forward and the narrative that the public had maybe there was like a, a you know somewhat of a middle ground and then three that that when they realize like hey, wait a second, if this can happen to that company, then that could happen to my technology or my work. So I first started to look at what are the tribes of people that we should go reach out to, and then started saying, in fact, so this is this is a kind of a fun sidebar. When I took the job, uh, I only took it because out of like just you know obscene curiosity. I just I couldn't believe they were going to let me do this. But when I got the job, and then I took six months just to do research and to learn, and they didn't push me to go out. I decided like, well, who would you talk to if you could go talk to anyone in the world that would maybe give you advice on how to do this? And so I went and talked with a man named Stuart Brand. Who ran the right. the? He runs the the. Uh, do you Earth? guys know Stuart Brand? Yeah, yeah. He yeah, ran whole the, the Whole Earth Catalog, and he runs the Long Now Foundation. Yep. And so, I go I go out to visit him. We mm-hmm. we go to his uh, bar. We go to the upstairs. We sit down on the ground on beanbag chairs, and <laughs> and I'm I'm telling him my problem, and he says, "You know, it really doesn't matter how much money North Korea spends on billboards." um, there's nobody that wants to fly to North Korea, right? There's, there's nobody that wants to come visit there for their vacation. So, you know, no matter how much advertising you do, you should just throw that all out the window. And that was really good advice to me because I realized like, Hey, the world does view us as Kim Jong Il. Right. And so if you, um, if you shirk away from that, if you say, okay, well, maybe that means we need to double or triple our advertising budget, or we need to advertise you know, more or harder, you're missing the point. Because one of the things that they, the PR firm that they had hired had, had been saying what we should do is like, let's sponsor conferences and then we'll get that five minute window when you, I'm sure you've seen these at a talk, right? Where there's that guy that stands up and says, hey, we're so proud to be a sponsor and now here's my five minute spiel and now I'm going to get off the stage. But if you do that, if that's the way you advertise to people, all you're doing is finding the market rate for how much people don't want to hear you. And so what I did was I said, let's burn the ships. So I actually gave back all of the marketing money and all of my team had no advertising budget at all. And what we said was, let's go find people, that they are interested in hearing the answers, our answers to their questions. And so uh, we kind of reversed the tables and we said, if you'll pay for us to come visit you, we'll come speak to any group that you want. And so I started going to college groups that were in sustainable ag, which then led to wider and wider and wider groups of people saying, hey, Uh, we'd love to have this guy come and they they think that they're trapping, you know, they're going to have a hell of a good time where they make the the director of millennial engagement look really foolish. And I stand up there and all I say is, hey guys, they let me look around. This is what I've learned. What questions do you have? If I can answer the questions, I will. And if I don't know the answer to the question, then I'll go back in and, and, and find out and I'll come back and answer it. And this worked uh, exceptionally well, because once you start getting a reputation that you'll answer real questions, people are um, very interested in hearing what you have to say.
1: What were some of the questions that they had?
2: Oh, I mean, you—you name any of the fears that people had about Monsanto. So, do, do your uh, GMOs cause autism? Why are you poisoning the Gulf of Mexico with all of your fertilizers? Um, are Indian farmers uh, committing suicide because you've enslaved them in debt? You know, wh- what are you doing to solve you know these types of problems? Wow, is that—is that when
0: you reminded them
2: that it also helps grow cannabis? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I brought a giant bag of weed grown with.
1: Me. <laughs> I'm sure that helps too, director of Millennial Engagement. Yeah,
0: so so there's there's all kinds of different ways of reaching people, but uh, throughout history, I mean, we've had a series of companies that there's always been the battle in the background of um, trying to be who's right and who's wrong and. AT&T was the most hated company for a while. RCA was a hated company. Um, and then when you hear the stories about how Edison and Westinghouse and Tesla were battling it out over the uh, what should be the standard for electricity, whether it should be AC or DC, and then um, how Edison would go to great lengths. I mean, he would actually uh, do little uh town hall meetings for communities and he'd show up and he would before the meeting he'd round up stray cats and dogs and he had actually electrocuted them on stage to show people how dangerous ac current was and uh, and that that just seemed like that going to great lengths and in fact that's the reason why we have the electric chair uh, because uh, Edison uh, invented the electric chair basically to prove how dangerous AC current was. And uh, so these things have been going on for hundreds of years. And um, so I'm, uh, on, a, on a scale of one to 10, how much difference did you make in the community? I mean, could you feel like you were, you were actually changed some minds?
2: Yeah, when I first took the job, you know, as I said, I, I had uh, friends that, you know, no longer wanted to be friends. And then, um, you know, we'd go to a dinner party and you'd start talking to people. And when they found out you went to, you know, you work at Monsanto, then there'd be like whispered tones. <laughs> One of the things I realized when I was there um, is, is that most of the time when I would talk to people, they would say like, oh, you work at Monsanto? And then they'd look over their left shoulder and then they'd look over their right shoulder and then they'd say, I don't have a problem with you guys, but I got a friend that thinks you're evil. it was very, very rare that you would ever encounter somebody that like actually said, I feel very strongly about this. And so one of the things that I learned was that a lot of the anger was vapor. It, it wasn't as real as everybody thought that it was. There were people that had seen a documentary. They definitely had kind of fallen prey to the Dunning-Kruger effect, but they weren't you know, an ardent hater of, of um, Monsanto. And then on top of that, then um, you started seeing like the, there was a huge push by the activist groups against GMOs. And I believe that the work of my team and other people that were saying, hey, we should definitely do what we can to let the public know the benefits of GMOs, um, or at least that they shouldn't fear them. You know, the, the non-GMO pressure that we saw in grocery stores and all over the place that was growing, growing, growing has not only stopped, uh, it started to rescind. Less and less people participate in the non-GMO verified project, it started going backwards. Now, at the same time, the fear of chemicals went way up, right? There were some court cases that Monsanto and Bayer lost um, about glyphosate Roundup. Um, so I think that in some ways we made a big difference on GMOs and then in other ways, the, the horses were let out of the barn on, on, um, on you know, Roundup. So it's kind of, maybe we did well in one domain and then the other domain um, kind of got away.
0: Yeah, so you, uh, the company ends up being remembered by its worst mistake. Not by its best accomplishment, um, and that—that's true in lots of cases. So, um, so where um, now? When when Bear took over Monsanto, how did that change things then?
2: Radically. So, um, bear is a gigantic company. You know, when, when people would be upset that Monsanto was, you know, such a large player in the ag space, they were relative to the other six players. And then, um, and then there was a time when basically market consolidation happened. So, Mm -hmm. um, bear bought Monsanto Syngenta bought, um, what'd they buy? Not, um, not BASF so anyway there was there were six companies and then there ended up being four and uh, and so there was a big amount of consolidation and when bear came over and took over, they basically slowed everything way down they they are, long term, very slow moving, very consensus driven, almost all the decisions coming out of Germany. So you went from having what some might describe kind of a cowboy culture of like, we're going to do innovation. We're going to try things. We're going to break things. We're going to experiment in ways that nobody's done before, which is what might made Monsanto a big leader. All of that was gone, and and bear tried, bear did, has taken it in a very different direction. Um, but I think that's actually true of of uh, all of ag. There's been way way less innovation, and I would actually say this is a function of if you allow activist pressure or consumer concerns to get so out of control. It, so maybe to back up a step, one of the things I often tell people, particularly in the activist world, when I'd be invited to those groups, I would say. Many of you don't actually realize that the work that you're doing, that you are trying to stop this uh, company that you think is too big or too powerful, you go out and scare the public. Well, these large companies, what they do is they go to the government and say, you know what? You're right. It is scary. We should do some more testing. Why don't we add two more years of testing on, and let's just say $10 million more of fees and licensing and you know, people to check in on us. Because to the large company, when there's only five other competitors, that's no big deal. But all the other new market entrants, the people that would come in and disrupt, now they need $20 million and you know, all this extra time. So you were creating a bigger and bigger and bigger moat. So the very thing the activists didn't want to do, have this large company, was the effect of all of their work trying to get the public to be afraid of this. And so now what you have are the only companies that can ever take a new chemical to be uh, registered so that that way they can use it in crop production or a new GMO is if you have hundreds of millions of dollars, it's okay if you miss through the regulatory process. And so it means innovation slows down, almost no new players will, uh, will come in and you're only going to have increasingly large companies involved in it.
1: That's a pretty common dynamic actually, is that as a company is able to capture a larger and larger fraction of the market share, they're able to set up these impediments to their future competitors by using the state to establish regulatory agencies or compliance, um, and, and and therefore just to erect all these hurdles that you know a, a startup with a hundred people or two hundred people could never hope to overcome. I'm curious. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Were you going to? No, up go ahead. No. All right, well, I was just going to ask about uh, GMOs. So this is I, I sort of vaguely remember the fervor over it and, and i didn't really get super into the debate at the time and and didn't read a lot of the studies or form my own opinion about it but i i, I know that there are people who just are enthusiastically in favor of gmos and people who re- remain of the view that they are going to you know cause autism or destroy the world so what's your like five minute uh, pitch for gmos and why they're safe and good and, and should be adopted
2: so it- you know, if we were talking to a large group of people, and uh, sometimes somebody would come to the microphone and say, Hey, you know, the exact question you just did, what do you think of GMOs? Are they dangerous? And where I would always start is when I came into Monsanto, I had no idea. I had kind of heard that, that GMOs were bad, but I didn't really know. I didn't have a strong opinion like you. And um, but I was probably, I don't know, 28 years old before I ever heard somebody say, I I don't think organic is better than conventional because that had just been the way that everybody thought around me. Right. But what really shocked me awake was, uh, had nothing at all to do with GMOs. And it actually was, um, you know, the history of broccoli, you know, and, uh, and it's a funny story, right? Not so something
1: that shocks people awake very often, the history of broccoli, not known for that. You, you, wouldn't, you
2: know, so I always imagined that broccoli grew in the wild and that when we decided we were going to farm broccoli, what we did was we went and found all the wild broccoli and we put it in straight rows and then we had broccoli, but it turns out that's not at all how it works. The way that it worked was People back in um, about six thousand years ago, because broccoli's only been around for about six thousand years, were uh, doing hunting and or gathering, foraging around um, riverbanks in the Mediterranean, and they would come across this plant called Brassica larica, and it would be about six feet tall, and it was amazing. It had these uh, this really deep root structure. It had these dark green leaves. It had these lateral buds. It had a flower on the top. And it turns out if you came across this plant, you loved it because you could eat almost the entire thing. And somebody figured out along the way, hey, wait a second, If we take the one with the bushiest seed pods at the top and we eat all the other ones, but that one, we just take those bushy seed pods and we take the seeds and we lay them out, then the next year when we come back, they're all gonna have this bushier seed pod. And so if you keep doing that every year, you put them down and you keep selecting for the one with the bushiest seed pods, eventually that selects so much that you have this big bushy seed pod and you get broccoli. Now that's amazing, right? But that's not the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing is if you select for those dark green leaves on the side, then you get kale. If you select for the little lateral buds that were on there, you get Brussels sprouts. If you select for the root, you get kohlrabi. And so this one plant gave us, uh, I think six plants that all children love to hate. And it was this like shocking realization that I knew nothing at all about how we got the vegetables that we grew. And this was, selection is actually the selecting of thousands of genes. And you're just saying, hey, we're gonna choose these out. So then when you start moving in the direction of GMOs, then you start asking yourself, well, when we were doing selection, and these were natural selection, now we're going to take instead of saying we're just going to we're just going to plant this and see what comes up, now you're saying we're going to find the one gene that uh, we're going to put in exactly this spot, and the only way it will grow, the only way it will do what we want it to do, the only way that we will allow it to to continue to propagate is if on this entire structure, it fits right into that spot. And so it's very, very precise. In fact, it's a lot more precise than other kinds of breeding. And then you could say, well, how do we know that that's not a bad thing? Right. Right, right. And, um, and I think I would point to many of the fruits we have in particular, the citrus industry, one of the reasons it was so successful in the United States was because of our use of a, of a process called mutagenesis. Are you familiar with this? No. No. So mutagenesis is when you take a pile of seeds and you expose it to um, a mutating agent. So it could be um, uh, some kind of chemical or it could be radiation and you're just bombarding it for a little bit of time. And then you go take those seeds and you plant them out in the ground. And then whatever grows up, you're like, Hey, it turns out this, when we uh, did mutagenesis to this grapefruit, they produced one with this really reddish color. These Texas red kind of looks like the ruby red grapefruit. These are amazing. They grow really well. We're just going to start taking that and putting it into production. And so this is completely legal. You can, you can do this mutagenesis is entirely uh, something that we use to, to make many of the crops that we eat in the grocery store right now. They've been produced by mutagenesis. GMOs, when you're talking to the scientists that were making genetically engineered crops versus these, they were saying, "Look how much more precise this is. We, you know we're, we're not just like slamming A, Cs, T's, and G's in, into this one and saying, you know, come what may. We're instead saying we want to do this exact code right there." So then you could keep going further and you could say, well, how do we know that, that that's safe? And I think the only thing you can say is that GMO crops, are more studied than anything else that we eat. So if people could find a, a strong correlation between these two things and, um, and they could say, hey, th- there is evidence that this is leading to these problems, then they would. There's, there's, it's more studied than most of the things that we have out there. Now to some people, that still doesn't make you feel good. It feels like the perversion of the genetic uh, code and, and that feels somehow wrong or dangerous. But at least when you start to have an opinion after you know these sorts of things, where does breeding come in, what is mutagenesis, how does genetically engineered crops work, then you can start to say, I have an opinion based on at least some foundational knowledge that I didn't have before.
0: Are there, are there actually any crops that haven't been modified?
2: Well, so if we think of modification as that selective breeding that I'm talking about, no, you know, everything you eat, you know, the bananas that you have used to have giant seeds in them. And and in fact, you know, um, well, the the potatoes we eat, you know, these are all things that we've selected for certain traits, whether it's insect resistance or fungus resistance, um, or even just their shape and color and texture and strength, peel strength, things like that. Um, So there's nothing we eat that has not been at a minimum selected for, but likely, um, but there's only something like nine crops that have been what we would call genetically engineered, where you're saying, we're going to take this gene and we're going to place it in this specific spot. There's very few of those.
1: And how, How have they done? What's the track record of those crops?
2: Um, so this is uh, this is really interesting because I haven't talked about this stuff in like three or four years ever since I, I left Monsanto. But um, the very first crop that was um, put to commercial use. Was called the Flavor Saver Tomato, and it was a commercial flop. It, it like they what they were trying to do was to create a tomato that I believe had had some flavor or texture properties um, that when you when you got it to the grocery store and people didn't like the way it tasted and so it, it just failed. But outside of that, the other nine, everything from uh, regular seed corn, soybeans. To sweet corn, rainbow papaya, things like that. They've all, once they've hit the market, they've been very successful.
1: What do you think is the future of agriculture?
2: Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think um, this is like the, you know, the trillion dollar question. I I think that um, John Deere just released an autonomous tractor, right? So their their belief is you're still going to use the same size tractor. Um, that we were using when you have a person in them. Only what you're going to do is be able to remotely drive it or have the driver, you know, not not necessarily even need to be in there. I think that's a short-term vision because I think that it's far more likely that um, the benefit of robotics in agriculture will probably become much, much smaller. It will probably be fleets of um, of drones, and drones probably being on the ground, trying to do things like detecting different insects so that that way you can go in there and spray very precisely in just a small area of your crops. I think that, um, that uh, land ownership will likely continue to consolidate for quite some time. Um, but you know, any one of these ideas that people put out for what do I think the future of ag will be like, it's very very hazy you know what happens if the chinese decide that they are only going to source soybeans from latin america or they develop their their own to be able to grow in china well now you have something like 40% of the cropland area. That's either growing corn and soybeans no longer necessary in the United States. So what are you going to do with that land? Is it still going to be as valuable? So there's many, many variables. It's like the further you go out and I'm sure you're aware of this too. Like every two, three, four, five five years you go out, it becomes more and more hazy about what the future will be.
0: Remember they
1: can so, put the metaverse parks on there that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. <laughs> we solve two
0: problems at once. Uh, so none, none of the lab grown meat companies have contacted you as being a spokesman for them because uh, in some in a lot of cases people are are saying ah I don't know about that um, but it seems to me like that's going to be uh, where we're going to get most of our meat in the future. It seems like that's we're, we're going to start seeing industrial meat growing facilities cropping up in cities all over the world. Um, At least that's what it looks like to me, And I I think we're going to see virtually every animal on the planet have their meat being sold. Uh, And whether it's um, kangaroo meat or bumblebee meat or penguin meat (laughs) or uh, wombat meat, I think. uh, And every one of them will come with testimonials as to yeah, this one cured my gout or yeah, this one enabled me to grow my hair faster and things like that. So, um, that's, that's what it
2: looks like to me. Any thoughts on that? You know, lab grown meat is up against a, a real challenge. And that is that evolution for things like cattle has been working for you know, hundreds of thousands of years. And so I think it's definitely possible that you're going to be able to make that energy conversion of, of some amount of proteins, fats, you know, lipids or whatever it is that you're going to do to be able to grow it in vats with yeast or, you know, different kinds of molds. But I think that is the distant future. I think it is a lot further off. And I think a lot of the companies that are doing this now, it is, it's, um, Um, I I think to, to make it akin to Google Glass is probably being really kind to it. I think we're probably something like 50 or maybe more years out from, from this reality, because the, the, the ability for a cow, for example, to convert sunlight into usable fat and protein is amazing. And the, the vats are going to have a long, long way to go on that
1: well this has been a fascinating conversation we're coming up on the end here are there any final thoughts you want to leave us with
2: man i really enjoy your podcast i was honored to be uh to be invited on here you've had some really amazing people and uh it's just fun to to talk about monsanto and ag it's it's uh it's an exciting thing and it's uh agriculture is one of those things that impacts everyone but most people don't know a farmer. And so it's, it's good to have these conversations and try and expose yourself to new ideas like this.
1: 100%, thanks very much. All right, thanks, fans. Thanks, guys.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.